0: So Ontario is summer and winter peaking. Our winter peak is a little less than our summer peak, but our peak demand period is those that, those summer months. And that's when our wind farms produce the least amount of power. And during those summer months, when we are running air conditioning, we're you know trying to keep our seniors cool, you know, all those important things, Pickering is outproducing that wind fleet by fivefold.
1: The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott. Providing a rational, evidence based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I am interviewing two key figures from Canadians for Nuclear Energy who bring a wealth of experience on the electrical grid and nuclear energy. A recent informal poll has suggested that a lot of people are are largely ignorant about nuclear power and its use in society. A significant fraction of people interviewed think nuclear power creates carbon dioxide. Many more don't understand that Ontario's electrical grid is one of the cleanest in the world thanks to nuclear power, which produces 60% of our electricity. I wanted to go to the source and understand a bit more about the history of Can do reactors and nuclear power and the electrical grid in Ontario. As always, if you enjoy what you're listening to, please press like on your podcast app, share it with your friends, and join the discussion at our Facebook group at The Rational View. Tom Hess is a retired independent system operator with 31 years of experience at Ontario Hydro and its successor company, the Independent Market Operator, which is now the Independent Electric System Operator, IESO. He started with field operation of transmission, distribution, and generating equipment, and then transitioned to control room operations for the bulk of his career, retiring as shift superintendent at the IESO. Tom, welcome to The Rational View.
2: Thank you, Scott. Pleasure to be here.
1: Chris Adlam is an electricity system and power generation enthusiast whose interest stems from a familial history in power generation, as his great-grandfather, Hubert R. Sills, was a hydroelectric engineer for General Electric, and his grandfather worked on some of the largest hydro installs in the world. While always being interested in engineering, Chris's interest in nuclear began around the time of Ontario's Green Energy Act. In his daily life, Chris is an IT professional who has been working in the healthcare industry for over 15 years. Chris, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks for having me out. Thank you both for coming on and sharing your expertise with our listeners. There's a lot of misinformation out there. People just don't realize how much uh, nuclear power is the backbone of Ontario in terms of our, our electrical system. And so I thought maybe it would be good to give a background. How did we get here? What, 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 do, what is can-do? So let's start at the b- very beginning here. We take uranium. We mine it. You make fuel rods, solid metal fuel rods. And uh, can- well,
0: you create ceramic pellets.
1: Ceramic pellets. Uh,
0: so it gets refined. We create these compressed ceramic pellets uh, called pelleting. And those get put in, inside these uh, zircaloids rods which get fabricated into a bundle. Uh, we have two bundle manufacturers in Canada, BWXT uh, and Cameco. Um, Cameco also does the mining and refining portion as well. BWXT does not. Uh, here in Peterborough, uh, we have BWXT uh, that creates the fuel bundles for both Pickering and Darlington. Okay. Uh, the Bruce Power fuel bundles are created in Port Hope by Cameco.
1: Okay, so you got these bundles of, of uranium and... This is natural uranium in the can-do reactor, whereas in the U.S., they have to increase the U-235 component in a process called enrichment.
0: Yeah, so they use a gas centrifuge, and mm-hmm. uh, that's all enrichments performed. Yeah, they use a series of gas centrifuges to increase the level of U-235 and reduce the level of U-238. Because civilian reactors can be refueled, the level of enrichment doesn't need to be very high. High enrichment is used for things like submarines uh, where you're not refueling it. I see. So you, you can vary the level of enrichment.
1: So now you have the uranium in these bundles and the uranium atoms naturally split and release high speed, high energy neutrons. And these neutrons don't create a chain reaction because they're too fast. Correct. And so you need a moderator that slows down these neutrons so that they can break more uranium atoms and and create a chain reaction which increases the heat production
0: exactly
1: so with the moderator in the can do we use heavy water which is uh called de- which uses deuterium instead of hydrogen so it's a hydrogen with two neutrons with double the mass so the the water molecules themselves are a little bit heavier and they're more apt to slow down or interact with neutrons than in the light water reactor so The can do is more efficient at slowing down neutrons and creating this chain reaction with a lower density of initial fissile material, and then this creates heat effectively, and the heat is boils water. It's carried off in a heat exchanger to a turbine which is powered by the steam and that spins and it makes electricity. So this is the, the guts of any nuclear reactor. And it just, the, the details of the, the fuel and the moderator uh, are basically what changes. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Now and they change considerably for the can do. Um, so while it, it has incredible neutron economy, uh, which is what we're talking about with respect to using deuterium instead, um, and it creates that flexibility. The fuel also doesn't last as long because it's not enriched. So, if we go back to our enrichment level, so civilian reactors, let's say they're capped at five percent, that buys twenty-four months roughly of time in the reactor before you need to do refueling.
1: Okay. But we don't have
0: any enrichment, so you're swapping out fuel bundles regularly. And so, one of the development parameters for the Candu was, well, how do you change the fuel? You need to be able to do it online because you can't be shutting the thing down every few weeks, swapping fuel bottles. Hmm. So that's what's led to Darlington's uh, incredible record of 1,106 days of continuous operation Uh, because conceivably, the can do never really needs to be shut down for things other than maintenance. Ah. I mean, obviously, there are are other things that take them offline, but uh, refueling is not one of them
1: okay okay
0: that's okay. a calandria
1: well there's a new word calandria what's a calandria
0: the giant vat, <laughs> and it's, it's full of water and it has all of these perforations uh which are your um uh, well there's calandria tubes there's two levels of, uh, of tubing here so you have your, your calandria tubes which are your, your tubes that pass through the calandria and then inside those you have your pressure tubes which is where your fuel bundles reside and uh, at Darlington, I think there's 12 bundles per pressure tube. Bruce is 13, and I don't know how many are Pickering. Tom probably knows. And these bundles are swapped out by a fueling machine. Uh, and there's end fittings on each end, and the machine just latches onto the end fitting, pulls that out, pull, shuffles the bundles, pulls out whichever one it's going to pull out, shuffles the bundles back in. Um, and this happens. There's one on each base. Of the Calandria. So um, at Pickering, there are 380 fuel channels per unit. At Darlington and Bruce, there are 480. Okay.
2: Pickering A, the older design, they had 390. Oh, there you go. I didn't even know that. Because the B, the B units were based on the can-do-6, downsized can-do-6. So that's how they ended up with the 380, 380 fuel channels.
1: Okay. So maybe uh, tell me. These things are being replaced very frequently in the can-do reactors. Does that mean there's more waste from a can-do reactor than from a, a, normal, a U.S. reactor, a light water reactor?
0: From a volumetric perspective, yes. We, we produce more fuel bundle waste. Um, from a radiological perspective, no. Uh, the fissile material left in a can-do fuel bundle is less than what comes out of the tailings of the enrichment process. But the thing is, is we have some. Well, we have the richest uranium deposits in the world. I had a, a thread on that the other day in Canada. Yeah. So, from an economic perspective, there is no case for reprocessing right now in, in Canada. We just we have too much natural uranium, and it's so cheap to, to fabricate these fuel bundles, and we can just store them, which is what we've been doing. Um, there's no real incentive. To pursue. the recycle. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, to answer your question, yes, we produce more of it, but it's not a problem. It's still a very small amount of fuel. It's just more per unit than, than what gets created in the States, right? You've got a 24-month fuel month. After. And
1: then we don't have the waste from the enrichment process because we're not enriching.
0: Correct. So we, we really, there, there's less waste, I think, in terms of an overall footprint because we don't have those tailings. Uh, we don't have that enrichment cycle. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we have more fuel bundles.
1: So where is the where is the can-do waste stored, and how is it stored?
0: Uh, so if you look at uh, use Google Maps, you look at Pickering. There's the Western Waste Management Facility. Anyways, they're they're stored directly beside the plants. They're like these concrete casks. Uh, Think of Pickering; they're outside. Uh, Darlington's are inside a, a large warehouse, uh, very nice looking. Uh, casks so uh, they, they sit in the spent fuel pool inside the plant for eight to ten years Until they're sufficiently cooled and then they get transferred into these concrete casks uh, Which are um, lead-lined and uh, they're made out of concrete and uh, Very very robust structures and then they just either go into warehouse or they, they go outside and the, the ones from Douglas Point uh, Which are on the Bruce grounds are all just sitting outside They're all just they were designed for external storage and it, it's amazing if you look at Douglas Point Point. All of the spent fuel from 20 years of operation could fit on my front lawn, and I do not have a very big front lawn. Wow.
2: I, I was going to say that when you were talking about the, uh, the spent fuel earlier, we're just heading into the nine hockey rink volume of waste. So you, you picture nine uh, regulation hockey rinks with the bundles stacked up to the top of the boards. That's how much waste there is from all the nuclear generation that has happened in Canada right from the beginning. So it's not very much, the volume really is very small. Um, you really don't need to reprocess that waste. It's it's low radioactivity. I read an article back in the late 90s where they talked about um, spent fuel and how quickly the, uh, the radioactivity decays on them. And one of the comments that I, I recall from that article was after 700 years, the only way you can have those fuel bundles affect you is you break them open and you actually ingest some of the pellets wow and um i've seen another graphic i can't remember the exact number it had but it seems to me it was like around 120 years where the waste is the same radioactivity as mine tailings which sit outside so so it's not very long before it's you know almost benign i mean there's still radioactivity but not a huge amount
1: is this a contrast between do and light water reactor t- uh used fuel
2: oh yeah the 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 um the radioactivity in the irradiated bundle is much less than uh, the 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 candu bundles coming out of the candu reactors
1: oh okay i did not know that you
2: know the the uh, the enriched ones you have you know other fissile mate- materials like plutonium and you know some of the more intense ones mm mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. There's a fantastic video on YouTube, um, and if, if for people who haven't seen it, I, I implore them to, to do so. It's uh, produced by a guy that works at Bruce Power. He got permission from the plant. This is, this is his own project. It had nothing to do with Bruce. Um, and he records this video of the, uh, moving the, the fuel bundles into the casks, and he's measuring uh, radiation levels all along the way, the entire time. And he's standing directly over top of thousands of fuel bundles sitting in the spent fuel bay. We're talking like an Olympic-sized swimming pool full of fuel bundles. And he's right over top of it. And there's almost nothing. Wow. And then they move them into the cask and they drain all the water out of the cask. And the cask has a, you know, like a pedcock drain on the side of it. and It's wide open. And he takes the, his Geiger counter and he puts it right at it. And it's basically zero.
2: Hmm. <laughs> I, I just I just came across a little meme, well, comic, whatever you want to call it, um, drawn up in the 80s or 90s, about um, the radioactivity how it how it affects you in a spent fuel bay. And they have people swimming and frolicking in the fuel bay and diving down. And it's only when you get within four or three feet, so around a meter of the fuel bundles is that that it actually starts affecting you. Hmm. Water's an incredible So you know, water water does a fantastic yeah. job. Interesting. So like Tom
0: Brady brought up something very important. Um and that that's about radioactivity. Okay. The most dangerous products have the shortest half-lives. That makes sense. Right? That's that's how exposure works. They radiate the so most those are the products that are most rapidly going to decay. So if you're looking at your Sprint nuclear fuel, right, and it's producing all of this decay heat, which is why it has to sit in that water for 10 years to, to cool off 8 to 10 years. By the time it's come out of that cool, all of those products have significantly decayed. It's still producing some heat, but not as much. It's also significantly less radioactive. And the longer that material sits, the more of those products are just going to disappear. Right, right. So, you know, we talk about, oh, um, Let's say, for example, um, let's say something has a, a half life of four million years. Oh my God, it's dangerous for four million years. No, it's not. If it's if it's got a half life of four million years, it's <laughs> you can just ignore it.
1: It's not dangerous. You no,
0: know, you're not going to get any exposure from that. It's the stuff with the short half lives that you need to be concerned about. So nuclear fuel continues to become less and less dangerous as as it sits there contained, and the, the real issue is just containing it for that initial period to prevent, you know, da- potentially dangerous exposure. And that tapers off relatively quickly.
1: I wanted to, to, to address that because obviously this is something that everyone worries about. Uh, this is a, a meme in the mind of the public that waste is an unsolved issue, that it's a uh, some some problem that nuclear has hazardous waste streams that get better over time, as opposed to other power sources that have hazardous waste streams that are hazardous forever.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Mercury, um, arsenic. For, For that matter,
2: fossil fuel emissions, if you compacted them and stored them like you do the spent nuclear fuel, pretty toxic stuff
1: it's true they don't seem as bad because they're not being captured and stored they're being spread into the environment
0: (laughs) that's right No, there are strict limits placed on darlington bruce pickering uh any any nuclear facility in canada is highly regulated and monitored monitored by the cnse they're constantly checking to make sure that these companies are you know following regulations and that the uh amount of emissions within spec but that doesn't happen with coal plants they just Pollute with impunity, and some of those emissions are radioactive. Where are they going? Well, right up into the atmosphere. Indeed. So,
1: so let's talk a little bit about the history of Candu's in Canada. Um, you're talking about uh, Pickering, Darlington, and Bruce, which are kind of the three main Ontario uh, plants. What? How did Candu reactors get started? When did this process start?
0: Uh, 1950s. We, I think, it started with well. We had had a couple of experimental reactors, but then we had the uh, NPD, which is Nuclear Power Demonstration Reactor, which was constructed at Chalk River, and that was kind of a proof of concept for being able to produce electricity using natural uranium. Uh, From that came Douglas Point, which is the first large-scale commercial uh, nuclear reactor in Canada, and it was 200, 200, 220 megawatt-e. Uh, and it's built, it still sits um, at the site where we now have Bruce. Uh, So Douglas Point, uh, I think it went critical 66? Tom, correct me if I'm wrong on that one.
1: It went critical?
0: Um, Yeah, it was producing, it started to produce electricity mid-60s
1: Um, A lot of people hear the term, uh, it went critical, and they think it exploded. So I just want to clarify the terminology here. Going critical in a nuclear reactor is a good thing, right? Yeah, that means
0: you've sustained a chain reaction. You've achieved vision. (laughs) Um, So Douglas Point produced electricity uh, a significant amount, you know, a couple hundred megawatts. And... you know, if you look back at some of our old hydroelectric stuff, for example, like we've had three or four generating stations at Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. None of them were the size of Back 2. Like these were all 100, 200 megawatt max. So, you know, in that context, Douglas Point, a single can do producing 200 megawatts was pretty impressive.
1: How much power do we get from
2: Niagara Falls?
0: Uh, Beck 2, I think is what, 1.6 gigawatt that right?
2: It's around sixteen hundred, yes, sixteen to seventeen hundred. And then the back one plant has been upgraded to the point where right now it's probably around three hundred and fifty megawatts and there's a couple of units yet to come back on, so around four hundred there. So roughly two thousand megawatts. But but you gotta remember the history back in the Back in the 60s, the units were smaller. Uh, um, You go with the fossil plants, the first uh, plant, the coal plant in Windsor, the Keith Generating Station. Those units were 84 megawatts. And then the Hearn plant was built in Toronto in the early 50s. And the first four units were 100 megawatt units, and the last four were 200 megawatt units. And then Lakeview was built in the early 60s, and they were 300 megawatt units. So you know, it wasn't out of out of line for the, the Douglas Point plant to be in that range, right? So it was 220 megawatts. So, and and that falls in line with the grid capability and and the way the uh, the system gets built up. So,
0: so and Terry Hydro, uh, well, ACL and and. Uh, Ontario Hydro got into some chats uh, after Douglas Point was, became a success, and that created the foundation for Pickering. Okay. So, Pickering was a uh, partnership between the government of Ontario, the Canadian government, AECL, and Ontario Hydro. And the agreement was that Pickering would pay for itself within 15 years.
1: Okay. That seems good. So,
0: Pickering was the first multi unit nuclear plant. Uh, they built the four Pickering A units, which were an incredible success. Uh, construction started in 1966. Uh, first power was produced in 70, I believe. Yeah, 70, 71. Um, yeah, incredible success. So from that, you know, people often refer to Pickering as the, as the oldest new plant. Uh, technically, the A units are, are because Douglas Point isn't operating anymore. However, after Pickering A, we did not build Pickering B. Okay. What came after Pickering A was Bruce A. Ah. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those things where, oh, Pickering's old, we need to shut it down. And then you've got Bruce that's going to continue running for another 30, 40 years. So <laughs> uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> anyways, so we built Bruce A and that was Ontario Hydro and it started to take more control Uh. At the time, the capacity factor, I think, for Pickering was supposed to be 60, 65%. Is that right, Tom? Um, that's about the
2: range they ran. And yeah, yeah. They, they were they were actually expecting higher. When, when you look at the projections for the life of a can-do reactor, uh, based on the effect of full power hours for the for the pressure tube life aging, um, they actually were based on 80%. But realistically, they, they ended up doing in the mid-60s to low-70s.
0: Yeah, I think for it was an economic target. I think was yes. sixty sixty five, um, somewhere in that range. So uh, Ontario Hydro took more interest in, in sort of steering these nuclear projects, and so we ended up with this larger four hundred and eighty fuel channel design. And Ontario Hydro had this interest in making these four packs, which is why Pickering A is four units, and then Bruce A was. Four units. Okay. Uh, obviously, and we were. I think that was based on what we were doing with the coal plants at the same time. Uh, if you look at Nanticoke multi-unit plant, um, it, you know it's very efficient. Taking that process, you have a common turbine hall, uh, and you have the units on the on the backside of it. Uh, so in terms of efficiency, it was a good move. So we built Bruce A, and it was everything was just bigger. So more more channel more fuel channels. Um, the Bruce A units were oversized on the steam side because they had plans of using process steam to run things on the site uh, the construction they started working on a heavy water plant um, the can do six design had uh, it was, it was sort of coming to fruition around that point uh, and the point with the idea was to export okay so if you're going to be exporting candies, you're going to need to be exporting heavy water.
2: But, but and- Ontario Hydro had to produce their own heavy water to begin with. The, uh, the heavy water plant was actually running before Bruce A started up. Mm. Uh, there was an oil-fired plant that produced the steam for the for the heavy water plant, and it was there. It operated till the mid '90s. Really. And. Uh, the stack on, on on that facility was just demolished a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago or something like that. When you look at the older pictures of the Bruce site, in the middle of it, the heavy water plant was, you can see a tall stack, and that was an oil-fired boiler. Ah, okay. And they actually used it for peaking, too. Like uh, The Bruce A units were, were running reduced to pr- supply the steam to the heavy water plant, and when you got into high load conditions where you needed extra energy, they'd actually fire it up and displace the steam back into the uh, Bruce A units for electric load put. hmm.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. So they had this process steam, the, these plans for, for process steam, including running this heavy water plant. That's when we end up the, the about the Candu six design was starting to be matured and for export. And so the idea of having all of this heavy water was that we'd be able to export heavy water along with the, the designs themselves, because you know we had to create that that capacity here for our own units. So other places are clearly not going to have that capability. So that was a selling feature. Hmm. So then Pickering B started being constructed, and the decision was made, even though Can-Do-6 was mature, the um, decision was made to make it the same as the A units. So the A units had 12 boilers. Okay. it's a lot of boilers. Um, the Bruce units have eight larger boilers, but it has eight, so the fewer. So, but the decision to, with, with Pickering B was to make it structurally like Pickering A. So the units all got 12 boilers. They have the same concrete domed containment structures. Uh, it looks very much essentially a mirror image of Pickering A. Like, conceptually, they're more similar construction wise to, to a CANDU 6, but from a power generation standpoint, they're more like the A units. Nope.
1: You're talking about con- concrete containment structures. Have the Candu's always had the concrete containment structures, or is this something that came after the Chernobyl disaster? Like people
0: at this point had a concrete. Okay. Containment structure.
1: So we've always had this containment structure in place okay. in the
0: Candus. NPD had a had a containment. Um, the unit before NPD did not, uh, or didn't have proper containment. We had a little bit of an incident at, at Chalk River, and that was. Uh, very much highlighted that, this, that there needed to be a the safety needed to be the absolute utmost priority in case you have an event. Uh, so NPD head containment, Douglas Point head containment. Uh, the domes at Pickering are a meter thick, and they are lined with uh, two or four inches of uh, of s- steel. Wow! So they're quite impressive structures.
2: The thing the thing that's different now with with the the four packs. In the case of Pickering, the 8-packs was a vacuum building was added on for, for extra protection there.
1: So what's a vacuum building?
2: That's what the standalone units don't have. It's, when, when you look at the, the, the pictures of the sites, for instance, Bruce A and Bruce B are separate plants, so they have their own vacuum buildings. Uh, so does Darlington. Pickering, the eight units, share one. Of course, two of them are in safe store. They've been shut down for a couple of decades now. But it's always got a vacuum drawn on it. And and what's that in place for is if you have an event on a unit where the pressure increases inside its reactor containment, the vacuum building will actually suck out the pressure. And it's got a dousing tank in it to, to, you know, cool down the, the steam or contaminants that are coming into it. And of course, if that operates, then the site will actually have to shut down because then the vacuum building is no longer protecting the other units. But it's an extra—it's an extra line of protection that these. Uh, yeah, and the, and the reason for
0: that was because Pickering was being adjacent, built adjacent to um, a population center,
2: mm-hmm.
0: so you know you had to have this extra amount of safety. I see. So they've got this this very novel approach, you know, use this negative pressured containment structure that sits adjacent to the units themselves and is piped into all of the the containment structures. It also has a massive, as as Tom mentioned, the dousing tank. It has a massive swimming pool at the top of it, essentially. It's full of water, uh, which can be used for dousing, but it can also be used for makeup water. So if you were to have a leak and you needed water, there is an obscene amount of it on top of that backing building and it's plumbed into all of the
1: units i see so this is to cool the reactors in the case you lose the power or you lose circulation from yep. from some other disaster that like the fukushima thing you know if power is out from the main grid you can pipe this water in to cool the reactors
0: yeah so, and that's one of the uh, and there's an obscene amount of it but what you've touched on an important thing so all of the canoes are designed to be passively cooled what does that mean so even if everything went black, you flood the steam generators and the units will just use convection and cool themselves.
1: Oh, okay. That's interesting.
0: All of the, all of the control rods are gravity operated and as well as, well as the, the poisons that kill the units. So if you if that unit went blank, or went black rather, it would poison itself out, the control rods would drop in, so put it in the lowest possible reactivity state. And if you had zero power, if you couldn't run any of the emergency pumps, if all of the backup generators had died, you, you know, think worst possible scenario, you still have a that massive gravity-fed pool of water for makeup water in the top of the vacuum building, but you also have the ability to just flood all the steam generators and use convection to cool, hmm. cool the units.
2: What, what they they use for the can-do units now as, as they've developed the safety systems and enhance the, the 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 safety systems. You know, everything is constantly changing and being updated. You know, the old analog stuff that was there in the 70s and 80s has been replaced with state-of-the-art digital controls, duplicated or triplicated and so on. The other big difference about the newer plants uh, versus the Pickering A plant is the Pickering A plant was based on the Douglas Point design. So the Calandry itself sits dry um, those units had a dump tank in there. When we were talking about the the uh, nuclear chain reaction, one of the, the the one safety system for the Pickering A units was just to dump the moderator into a tank underneath the calandria,
0: the core yeah. catcher.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that would stop the reaction. Um, the only problem is it took about ten seconds to do it, which was considered too slow. So. Pickering A only had one fast-acting safety system. When they returned from their outage in the late 90s, that one safety system was split into two, so they're not quite independent. But they do have two uh, control rod drop schemes in there. But the, the newer reactors, the Calandria is filled in the light water vault. So it's, it's filled up with water all around the Calandria. So, so they even have that. that everything sits in a, in a big pool of light water. So, Hmm.
0: And it can, you can't sustain fission in light water. That's, that's another important point there. Okay. So if things do rupture. You, you lose your heavy water moderator. You cannot sustain fission.
1: Okay. One thing I had heard, uh, when I did my interview with Ed Lyman, he said that, well, can do is no good because they have a positive void coefficient. Or they're not safe because they have this positive void coefficient. You know what that means?
0: I do. Um, It's very, very, very slight, Uh, and it just means that reactivity increases rather than decreases uh, in the event of an overheat condition, essentially. But that's why there are all the schemes that Tom just touched on, all these additional mitigation mechanisms. Um, So, for example, the reason the, the fuel channels are oriented horizontally is because in the event that you had an overheat, situation did lose all of your water, those channels would deflect and it kills the unit If the unit if they aren't straight, kills the unit. Okay. so there are all these sort of inherent safety features to prevent any sort of cas- catastrophic event, you know the, the double layers of water. Um, and that's, the big, that's your biggest risk is loss of cooling. and we've got that covered in spades. Uh, so the, the positive void coefficient doesn't really apply. In this case?
1: Because
2: you'd never get there. Not really, they like to talk about it because that, that was also in the RBMK reactors, right? Chernobyl, mm. which had its little overheat issue and the hydrogen explosion or water explosion, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So they, they always like to tie that to it and say, oh yeah, it's got a positive void coefficient, but I mean, they're, they're totally safe.
1: Okay. So we got to Pickering uh, A and Pickering B. When did Pickering B come online?
2: Mid '80s, I think '86. Bruce B. and Pickering bee yeah. actually overlapped. The the, the last Pickering bees were coming on when the uh, the first Bruce bees were coming on, so they actually yeah. overlapped.
0: And then was Darlington, <laughs> which which was the unit that was impacted by Chernobyl. There was a, a big pause placed on the construction of Darlington uh, because of what had happened in the Ukraine, and it was basically despite there being no similarities whatsoever between the design, between our design and the Soviet design, we had to prove it couldn't happen. And until that was, was proven, construction was all. So Darlington took about 10 years. If, you know, you look, think back to how, long, how quick the other units were coming online. And then Darlington was 10 years.
2: Wow. Okay. There is there, a bunch of things going on there. As the nuclear plants were coming on, um, for instance, the Keith plant was retired. The Hearn plant was retired. So they were actually already getting coal off the system with these units. And then there was a recession in the early 80s, 83, 84, where demand dropped. And, and besides the Chernobyl thing, um, you know, the government says, we don't really need Darlington. You know, maybe we should just cancel it, you know, and it was well underway at the time. And then the Liberals came into power and they wanted to cancel it. And then they decided, no, we'll continue working on it, but we'll slow down the construction of it. So they actually stretched it out.
1: Well, that's not good for cost, is it?
2: No. Oh, no. (laughs) And so they took a much longer time to do it. But even the guys I worked with, they says, oh, we shouldn't be building Darlington. We got Lenox sitting there. We could burn oil there for 30 years for cheaper than building Darlington. Hmm. So, you know, that kind of mindset was in there. Oh, oil is oil is cheaper. We can burn that and not build the nuclear plant. Right. God. So.
1: So Darlington took 10 years. When did that come online?
2: The first unit started commissioning in 91 and about three months into the commissioning, they, they found rotor cracks on it. I think it was number one that was first. It might have been number two that was first. But anyway, what they ended up doing was stealing the rotor from the G4 unit to put in there to carry on commissioning. And then they were starting to get fuel bundle cracking and they cracked that down to vibrations in the uh, heat transport system. It's basically bouncing the bundles and they were cracking. And it took them a while to figure that out, and um, they determined that the uh, heat transport impellers were in- introducing a frequency into the system. I think it was 150 hertz. That was a resonant frequency for the bundles and causing them to bounce, so they actually had to change the impeller design. They, uh, they changed the number of blades on the impeller to push the frequency up to into the 200 hertz range or something like that. And that fixed the problem. but, um, you know it, it was nothing they could do at the time. It was the first design of this type of heat transport system. Darlington has a dual loop. It has two two independent loops, whereas all the other units have a single loop. So that's the first time it happened. Of course, now when anybody designs a plant now, they they look for this thing. But Darlington was the first plant that encountered it. So that delayed commissioning for a couple of years there. And if you look at the uh, in-service dates between a couple of units, that's why they're so close. Because the one was almost ready to be declared in service. And then they had to stop commissioning and sit there idle for about a year, a hmm. year and a half.
1: So let, let's let's talk economics here. Pickering was supposed to pay itself off yes. in 15 years. Did that happen?
0: Pickering's, <laughs> Pickering's the only one that did, wow. though. Okay. Pickering was quite cheap compared to the subsequent plants. Uh, there were some design changes. Tom just touched on one of them uh, with the with the dual-loop cooling. Uh, so Darlington so as, as you progress, you have fewer and fewer seam generators or boilers. So Pickering has 12 per unit. Bruce has eight. Darlington has four. Okay. So Dar- Darlington has two loops and two, two steam generators per loop. And Bruce is just, yeah, I saw as Tom said, one big loop uh, and that actually created an issue for the site back in the 90s. Bruce has the highest thermal capacity of any units in our fleet. So they're actually higher than Darlington because they have more bottles. So same number of fuel channels, but 13 versus 12 bottles. Okay. There was a risk, potential risk identified that if the units were running at 100% full power and they had a loss of cooling incident, that potentially it would be too slow to react to that and uh, you could have an issue. Okay. So you couldn't shut down the unit fast enough before damaging anything. I see. So you risk damage to the core before it would be sufficiently shut down uh, running at 100% full power. So they derated the units considerably. And then they had to employ some mitigation mechanisms, uh, revise the end fittings. Um, I think they looked at changing the coolant flow. And ultimately, that in increments allowed them to eventually get up to 95% full power. Okay. Which is where they operate right now. Okay. So, Tom shared an amazing video uh, on YouTube uh, from back in the day when he was in the control room era. And you could see the Bruce units producing 860 megawatts, the Bruce B units.
2: Each of four. Yeah. And the Bruce A units down at 5 and 600 supplying steam. If you look at the Bruce B units right now, they're producing
0: around 820. Okay, because of the D rating. And they were producing 860. Yes, because of the D rate. So that's been an issue that's, I wouldn't say plagued, but it has hindered the plant for the last 20 some odd years. It's basically. I wouldn't say it's been kneecapped, but it's it, yeah, it's a performance impediment. So one of the things that they have been working on as part of their MCR, which is their major component uh, replacement refurbishment plan, is as a way to get around that. And I don't know if they're looking at changing the the, the coolant direction flow of making it two loop or not. I honestly don't know. They're replacing all of the boilers. Uh, Bruce. All of them. yeah. They have all the boilers on site, that's a lot of them. Uh, they're replacing all of those. I don't know if they're also looking at changing, making changes to the cooling system while they're changing out the boilers. If they were, that would be the time to do it when you're replacing them all anyways. But regardless, that I know that they're also working with Cameco on modified fuel bundle designs. But anyways, there have been various, a pr- uh, attempts to try to improve the performance at Bruce to get back to, to where it was supposed to be, um, but as part of this MCR, which is more involved in the refurbishment at Darlington, uh, because they're also doing boilers and they're also doing upgrades, they're uh, doing steam side and generator side tweaks to the to the units to increase output, uh, which is quite obvious. So if you looked, you know, the A units were originally 750 megawatts. Uh, Seven hundred fifty megawatt e, right? And then they also produce processing. Unit one, A one, is now producing eight sixteen, hmm. and that's still on a five percent D rate.
1: Wow. Okay. So it's, we're getting, we're tweaking these things to get tens of megawatts extra just by tweaking the design.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So, so the plan right now is to get rid of the D rate entirely as part of the MCR. And they're very, I would say, I will use the word confident. They're, they're incredibly confident about being able to achieve that. I don't know if you saw the recent announcement, but 7,000 megawatts and beyond.
1: So that, that dwarfs Niagara Falls, right? That's Oh,
0: God, yeah. Bruce runs close to 90% capacity factor. So it's Darland's a little better, um, but they run very high capacity factor. And with the increased electrical output, uh, it, it's by, by a huge margin, the largest generator in the province. So the if you look at some of the pictures from the recent MCR, you'll notice the units, the B units, say eight eighty 80 on the side of them now.
1: Okay, okay, so wow. Uh,
0: they're, they're very confident. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's get back to the, to the so economics the, here. <laughs> so obviously there was a lot of uh, redesign early on in the 80s and 90s. I remember, um, you know, when they privatized Ontario Hydro, there was this stranded debt of billions of dollars related to building all of these nuclear plants that they didn't think would ever get paid off. And we've been paying this debt repayment charge on our hydro bills for some time now. Uh, so is it all paid off? or Are the nuclear plants paying for themselves?
0: So 80s and 90s, when we were building all of these things, Ontario Hydro was carrying the debt from those, but it was also carrying the debt from other generating assets. It's not exclusively from the nuclear plants. Oh, okay. Um, Bruce cost something like 6B, B cost something like 6 billion. Mhm. Like it wasn't super expensive. The only one that went way over budget was Darlington. It was 14.3 billion. And
2: That's because the construction was slowed down. You got to remember at the time the interest rates were nuts too. It was all financed debt at those interest rates.
1: Oh god, yes. You
2: no, know, they they were in the teens and and they peaked in the low 20s. Like it was absolutely absurd at the time.
0: Yeah, Pickering A was like 1.8, like it wasn't. It wasn't super expensive. Pickering B was like
2: 2.8.
0: Just pulling those numbers out of my my posterior. (laughs) I remember the Pickering plans were not overly expensive, and that was. And Bruce A wasn't really super expensive either. Bruce B was a bit more. Uh, but Darlington was the one where things just went sideways and it was you know, this combination of high interest rates, Chernobyl putting a pause on the industry, um, the issues that, that Tom mentioned. You have to realize that, so Pickering was kind of blown up into Bruce A. right? You took this design and we're gonna make it bigger and they did. So fewer boilers but same basic concept. And the idea was is that we, yes, we were working on this export model the can 6 which was designed to be a standalone export capable plant but at the same time okay well we've got these bigger units we can export them too so that created the foundation for the Can-Do 900/Can-Do 9 uh, which was an export version of a 480 fill channel design okay so it's like a big bigger brother of the Can-Do 6 and the Can-Do 9 like like with Pickering, A and B were basically the development hotbed for building the Can 6, right? Like the the Do 6 is what distilled out of that construction process. And in the same way, that's how the Can 9 happened. Is that, you know, you looked at Bruce, Bruce A, was, well, Bruce A is an interesting case study in itself. I don't want to get into that too far, but <laughs> there are some differences between each of the Bruce A units as they were kind of trying to figure out what they were doing. Oh.
2: Actually, there's differences in all the units, except maybe Darlington. Hmm. Hmm. As they go along, as they were building the units, the engineers at Hydro like to to tinker and tweak, right? That's, That's why they wanted more control over these things. And um, I think AACL was much the same way. And and, uh, as you're building the units, you know, they're supposed to be identical and hey, this works better. You know, we can run this pipe this way rather than that way or have this thing, uh, you know, connected to this rather than that or protect this this way rather than that way. So they, um, every unit actually has differences. And and it's like that with all of them. In fact, when they built the can-dos for Korea, Korea insisted that all the units be identical. That, that was a good decision. They didn't want any updates or tweaks or anything. They they wanted them identical.
1: So these plants are, are are all being refurbished right now. The the Bruce and and Darlington are being refurbished. How many years do they have left in them after these refurbishments?
0: Well, so that gets us into the, the whole look at Pickering uh, situation. So um, we've already done Pickering one and four, but we didn't do the boilers. Okay. And we already did Bruce one and two, but we did do the boilers. That's uh, that, again gets back to that confidence that uh, Bruce Power has. They've already done full, full boiler replacement on two units. They know what they're gonna, they're they're into.
2: But what, what you can do, do Al, is look at the Pickering B units, which are pushing 40 years now, and so are the Bruce units, the Bruce B units, same thing. So the, the original 30-year estimate for life has already increased for, by 10 years, and it can probably go further, although there have been some issues that came came into play here the last few months about the, the hydrogen accumulation in certain portions of the tube. But... Um, You know, they've increased the effect of full power hours on the tubes. The original design was 210 hours and Pickering is good for Mm 210,000. And the Pickering is is allowed to go to 295,000. The Bruce units, they're good for 300,000. Okay. So that pushes them up to 40 years plus. So when, when you get after refurbishment, the life of those, you're going to nominally probably look at maybe 30 or 35 years, but you're probably going to get 40 or more years out of them yet. Yeah. So. And, that, and that's
0: consistent with what Bruce Power's anticipated life is.
2: And, and that'll be based on the actual hydrogen pickup that they're detecting in the tubes. Mm-hmm. They, they, they do modeling, but then uh, as, as the unit ages, they're checking the hydrogen accumulation in the tubes and they can estimate, oh, well, we can extend this further type of thing. And, so.
1: and, and looking at the economics of this, so Bruce Power is actually uh, a commercial operator. This is not provincially run at all. This is divested to a commercial group and they are providing power at a fixed rate. Which includes all the money that they're spending for these upgrades. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. How much is it?
2: There was just an interesting Twitter exchange um, where one person on, online, a lawyer actually, said, oh, you know, they're being subsidized by OPG. The, the rate you're seeing for Bruce Power is not the real true rate. And Bruce Power piped up and says, no, it is. And, and they, they quoted, I believe, 8.1 cents per kilowatt hour. All in, that's refurbishment, everything.
1: And that, that's below the average.
0: Oh yeah, it was significantly below the average. How, how that was negotiated was Bruce was originally on a 6.4 or 6.6 cent rate, fixed, fixed rate uh, with province. And then they have this massive $13 billion MCR project. So the agreement was, is once, that, once that was underway, that price would increase to 7.7 cents. Okay. Which could then be adjusted for inflation. I see. And we are at the adjusted for inflation bit right now. That's why we're at 8.1. There's been some minor tweaking to that rate. Uh, it was 7.8, 7.84, I think, last year. And now we're at 8.1. Does
1: this also include um, decommissioning and fuel storage?
0: Yes. There's, there was uh, around $20 billion um, in two, two funds that are managed by the, um, by the Ontario government right now, the majority of that is for uh, decommissioning. And there's about 5 billion of it that's set aside for spent fuel management.
1: And that's taken out of the price that we have right now that we're paying, which is below the average.
0: Correct. Yeah. So Bruce Powers 8.1 cents includes that both of those, both of those funds. It includes the entire cost of their refurbishment. uh, Everything. The works. Just, just,
2: Circling back to the uh, the stranded debt, you know, the numbers we're talking about here for the Green Energy Act and, and paying these people not to not to produce and so on is so much higher than what that stranded debt was. And the stranded debt came out of the fact that they split up Ontario Hydro into five companies. And a good chunk of that stranded debt was the extra cost that was there for Darlington. So OPG being a smaller company than Ontario Hydro was, because all they were was a generation company. They, and, and there was a few other factors that went into it, too. The strand of debt was put on into the uh, Ontario Finance Corporation. They had a line on the, on the electricity bills. It was uh, 0.9 cents a kilowatt hour that we had to pay, and, and it was supposed to be paid off in 12 years, so basically 2011. And the thing never got paid down at the rate that it was supposed to get paid down at, and quite frankly, I, I personally think people were playing with those funds and and hiding fund expenses in there for other things because it just kept stretching further and further and further, and I believe it was there until Doug Ford said the, enough of this. It's going on in the government's books now, and there wasn't that much left, but it was but it was supposed to be paid off in 2011, but. Somebody was playing with the thing, and it was never being paid off. So it it wasn't a huge amount. It didn't really make Ontario Hydro insolvent. It was just there was there was a chunk of debt that they really couldn't put on any of the successor companies that they had to deal with.
1: Well, they're basically using it to, to subsidize the renewable energy feed-in tariffs of what does you say? almost 15 cents a kilowatt hour for wind and 49 cents a kilowatt hour for well, solar. I think
2: at the time they, they were big on conservation too.
0: So like, when I first started paying electricity in Ontario, I was paying 4. 4.4 mm. 4.6 4. cents a kilowatt hour flat rate.
1: And now now we're now we're soaking up debt to adjust the price of the the renewables. Yes. Uh but let's let's move on. Um, we're getting towards the end of our time. here. I just want to touch on um, the Pickering refurbishment idea that's been floated. Um, so we know that the Bruce is being refurbished, the Darlington's being refurbished, and the Pickering is not being refurbished. Uh, and they're saying, from what I hear, the justification is they don't think it's as economical as the other two refurbishments what what are the economics of of refurbishing pickering and why is this a problem
0: so the pickering refurbishment was approved by the canadian nuclear safety commission let's get that out of the way first opg already had a plan for the refurbishment they submitted to the cnsc the cnsc approved the plan
2: and then we had
0: the gong show with the green energy act that we just touched on we also had opg wanting to build darlington b and then we also had the impending approval or approval for the refurbishment of Darlington A. So you had all of these large projects that kind of wanted to be done at the same time, around the same time. And we had a government that was not really interested in nuclear and it was like, we're doing wind and solar privately and wasting tens of billions of dollars that way. So... When the cost of the Darlington B project started to, to come up, OPG just abandoned the Pickering B refurbishment and focused on the Darlington refurbishment and wanted to see you know if they abandoned the Pickering refurbishment, maybe they'd get to build Darlington B. And then 20, 2014 rolled around. They abandoned that in 2011, I think it was, uh, right when the EA was approved for Darlington B. And... Then Kathleen Wynne canceled Darlington B in 2014. Ah. So even after doing all of that, they still didn't get to build it. Hmm. So there was some, definitely some politics in play there as well. Um, but there is an economic, uh, there is a valid economic critique for, for Pickering. The Pickering units are smaller. That's really what it comes down to. You have four units that need to be refurbished and they're 516 megawatts each. Versus 878 for the Darlington units. If you look at the cost in terms of per megawatt, these units are going to be significantly more expensive to refurbish because they don't produce as many megawatts. I see. Right? That, that's ultimately what it comes down to.
2: More parts, 12 steam generators, you know, the pumps and all that, a whole bunch of pumps. And it takes a, little, a few more staff to run them than the other, other units because... The, they're a little bit more complex, right?
1: Hmm. So what's the upshot? We were looking at something like, uh, when we were chatting about this before, something like $9 billion, $8.6 to refurbish Pickering.
0: If you look at the per unit cost for Bruce, right? So you're replacing eight steam generators. You're doing all of this other work that they're doing at Bruce. They're replacing all 480 fuel channels. And they're doing these upgrades and some additional tweaks they are upgrading control systems. You know, they're doing the majority of the same things we'd have to do at Pickering Me. Okay. So I took that per unit price and apply that to Pickering. Because it's not... The Pickering refurbishment's different from the Darlington refurbishment because the Darlington refurbishment's not getting the same stuff. Whereas Bruce really is. They're very, very similar. So Bruce benefits from OPG already paying the price to get the supply chain in motion. And... You know getting uh, so the, the Bruce refurbishment's less per unit, but in terms of similarity, it's very similar. So, the idea we had was to tack the Pickering refurbishment onto the end of the Darlington refurbishment, so you're again capitalizing it from that momentum, you're capitalizing from those supply chains because they all take the same bloody parts for the most part, like they're very similar in terms of components, they all have pressure to and
1: the yeah. same expertise as exactly, well, exactly right? For oh. all candies,
0: so BWXT would produce the, the boilers just like they did for Bruce and so that per unit price ended up with an eight well the exact figure was 8.7 billion so we fudged it and said maybe nine
2: okay and the schedule we're sort of evaluating uh like like christopher said dovetails into darlington and basically dovetails the workforce into that too they move over from darlington over to pickering and it's continuity for the workforce the expertise the supply chain etc cetera, etc cetera, right so
1: so that's that's And that produces as much power as in a year. I think in 2019, uh, Pickering produced 24 terawatt hours. Our entire Ontario wind fleet produced uh, 11.7 terawatt hours that same year. So this is twice the annual output of our entire wind fleet for the next 30 to 40 years for $8 billion.
2: What what you have to look at, though, is... But what you get out of the refurbishment of the four units, which is the $8 billion, is you get to continue operating units one and four at Pickering A for the balance of their life. Which we've already paid for. Yeah, so that's that's where the 24 um, terawatt hours comes from. And, you know, that part of that is the A units, which you're hanging on to that are really not part of the refurbishment, but they they do provide you that bonus.
0: Uh, you, you can do this as many times as you want. Like the, the calandria doesn't wear There's There's no wear component to the clandria. It's not pressurized. It just sits there. It's a giant vat of water. So you can swap out those pressure tubes as many times as you want to. Interesting. Uh, it's the rest of the plant that you're concerned about at that point.
1: Well, this, this, is, this is a good plan. I think so. This seems very doable. It seems very achievable. It seems economical. Um, and maybe we should throw in a Darlington B uh, as well while we're doing this.
0: Well, and I do want to mention one point. You brought up the annual output, but that, that doesn't tell the story. And the, and the reason for that is that Pickering outproduces our 5,000 megawatt wind fleet by five times during the summer.
1: During the summer when we need the power the most.
0: Yes, so Ontario is summer and winter peaking. Our winter peak is a little less than our summer peak, but our peak demand period is those, that, those summer months. And that's when our wind farms produce the least amount of power.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And during those summer months, when we are running air conditioning, we're you know trying to keep our seniors cool. It's a very good point. You know, all those important things pickering is outproducing that wind fleet by fivefold, And that's not captured in those annual figures.
1: So this uh, has been a great discussion, guys. Uh, I really appreciate you guys coming on and, and helping me and understand where we're at. And hopefully everybody has learned a little bit about uh, our can-do fleet, which is, as, as we say, 60% of Ontario's electricity is being produced by our can-do reactors. And let's let's keep that going. <laughs> we'll keep the momentum. Thanks for all your your good work in, and with Canadians for Nuclear Energy and... Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'll send you guys some some Rational View t-shirts for coming on with me and you can enjoy those and and show up show off the podcast to, to all your you know, all your buddies. Yeah, thank you very <laughs> much for having us.
2: Yeah, pleasure being here.
1: If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page. At patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.